Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. This week, our guest comes from the corporate world. Kathy Bassant is the Chief Operations and Technology Officer at Bank of America. Now, since joining the bank in 1982, Kathy has held several senior leadership roles. After ranking number one for three consecutive years, Kathy was inducted into the 25 Most Powerful Women in Banking Hall of Fame by American Banker in 2020. Bassant was named to Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in U.S. Finance and received the 2019 Women in Technology in Data Trailblazer Award. Now, perhaps this explains why Kathy likes to be challenged to solve complex problems. On that note, together we'll discuss the post-pandemic challenges in the workplace and marketplace and why the new currency for great leaders of the future is to become a continuous learner. We will also debate why great standardized processes often sets us free to create more personalized outcomes and how to mitigate the risks of technology and organizations to ensure it respects the need for human connection. Now, before we get started, make sure to hit the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis so that you can be in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Kathy, thank you for joining the show today. Glenn, thanks for having me. Oh, you're very, very welcome, Kathy. And so let's get to know Kathy a little bit. You know, in, pre- in preparing for our time today, Kathy, you said to me, bring the hard stuff, the toughest stuff. I want to solve complex problems. I don't want the, the easy things. And when you said that, uh, you had mentioned that you had summited Africa's Mount Kilimanjaro, the world's tallest freestanding mountain at 19,341 feet. Why do you care so much? You know, it's funny. I, I have on my mirror in my bathroom, I have a sticker, one of those round stickers that says 19,341. And when they when I bought the sticker, it said 19,340. And I crossed it out and I put that one in there because I am telling you, that last foot was the hardest foot of all. No question about it. You know, I, I um, easy things bore me number one, and I am much more effective both as a human being and as, as um, a professional when I'm deeply engaged. So I, I'm, I, it's not that I can't phone it in. It's that if I do try to phone something in, I'm terrible at it. So, so I like the hard things because they're challenging. Second thing is I am a person who I believe that, that I've been given a lot and and including a lot of opportunity and and I go by the the phrase that to those who much is uh, from 
for those who much is given, much is expected. And I certainly expect that of, of myself. Um, you know, I'm not a deeply religious person, but if I if I'm really thinking about what do I believe the purpose of life is, why are we here? Maybe see, I went totally deep, totally early. Uh, I it's to leave the world a better place to that. Our impact is, is not so much about the years we're here, although that's important. It's what remains after that we have caused to happen where we've had an impact, where we've made change and leaving the, the world a better place for our children is I think what it's all about. And that's why I care. Kathy, what do you advise an executive like yourself uh, during these times of uncertainty where we're getting moving closer to getting out of the pandemic? I mean, things have fundamentally changed and many of these changes will remain permanent. These changes are going to require hard work. What do you think the role of leadership really means today? You know, I believe that the work of the pandemic is not coming to an end. It's only beginning. Hmm. I talk with my team all the time about the fact that I think 2021 and beyond is much more challenging and much more complicated than than 2020. And the reason I say that is not to minimize in any way the human health crisis, the global human health crisis and the global suffering and individual suffering that we've seen. But in a moment of crisis, what to do is uh, is actually clear. We've got to save lives. We've got to get vaccines out. We've got to you know, we've got to do these things that are clear and visible today. What we have to do to absorb the learnings to be better from from what we've been through is a lot more complicated to work through. What's the future of work? What's the future of societal interaction? Are we smart enough to change? to have learned um, from what we've done right and what we've done not so well. So, that, and that's much harder. No, and, and Kathy, I agree with you. I mean, I think what's made, been made very, very clear is that business and society will forever be interconnected. And one can make the argument, it always was. And, and so I share this because I actually believe that a day of reckoning is coming. And I'm an optimist. And what I mean by that is, there are some big decisions that we need to make with urgency. Others, not so much. But even those that don't have as much urgency, we need to be out in front of our thinking on what's required more than ever. Why do I bring this up? Because I don't know how prepared we are for what's about to hit us. What do you think we all need to be prepared for? now moving forward? Well, I think we first have to face up and own the fact that we were completely unprepared. Yes. There isn't an element of society, human or institutional, that was prepared for this. In fact, I, you know, one of the biggest changes I believe we have to make is to, to rethink the concept of probability mm. because the highly improbable, unthinkable, a global shutdown for a health crisis has happened. Most people would have said low probability, high impact. We got to get the probability out of the discussion and start to think about and prepare for things with the assumption that things happen, not deluding ourselves with the concept of a low probability, 
but rather preparing ourselves, the planet, our institutions, um, our society for for the things that might therefore could because we've seen them happen. So how do you measure risk at a time like this? It's an interesting question, because the thing about especially being in in banking, being in most businesses uh, involves the management of risk not the elimination of risk. Mm-hmm. And the one danger of, of the, the concept I just tossed out at you about getting probability out of the discussion is you then try to manage all the risk down to zero. And that can't happen either. I mean, I, I, you know, there's one sure way to protect people from cyber attacks, and that's to stay off the network or stay off the Internet. Right. And right. that's not going to happen. So, so, you know, inherent risk is always there. The question is being able to to um, to understand the potential outcomes or the potential things that can happen, both outrageously great and the calamity, and to figure out how to be prepared enough to have confidence in our ability to handle whatever comes with the full knowledge that um, we can't eliminate its likelihood. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think you just transitioned us nicely into the fact that consumers and employees, uh, their expectations uh, have changed forever. They've changed, uh, employees expect different things from leaders uh, and their organizations, so do consumers now. And, And I think that part of what we're grappling with now, and I love your perspective on this, is I think that the the pandemic made it very clear that there's there are two forces that are competing with each other. The the forces of standardization where uh, individuals were defined by institutions and institutional protocols and metrics. And now this age of personalization where the individual uh, wants to experiment, the individual um, expects to have influence in how organizations work, learn, lead and conduct business. How do these two forces coexist during this time of of radical and rapid change? Well, I'd start out by saying one thing. I have for decades, sadly, I have to measure it in decades, uh, that decades that I've been in business. But I've long, long, long been a believer in what I call for myself the segment of one. Hmm. Right. Um, And I think about it in terms if you think about it in terms of your physician. Your physician has many patients, but in your interaction with him or her, they are your only doctor. So this whole this whole notion of segment of one and personalization, I think, is at the heart of of how I have thought about things for a long time. But I toss it back to you a slightly different way. I don't think standardization and personalization compete. I think one has to beget the other. I agree. Wow. I love it. Sorry, Kathy. Keep going. But but I love what you're saying. Keep going. I just think great process, often standardized, great process sets us free for making the content personalized. So Hmm. in a month and a half, I will I run a standardized approach with each of my direct reports just to give it give it a, a real practical example. And I will do a mid-year performance review for every one of my direct reports. Mm-hmm. And I do them, I, you know, I set the same amount of time. It's a, re- it's a regular routinized process, but the content of everyone is personalized. 
No two of them are alike. They shouldn't be, couldn't be, no great manager would ever have it be that way. But it's because I've, I've got a, a routine of doing it. I don't have to worry about how I'm going to do it. I have to worry about what I deliver. So where do you think someone starts with personalization or standardization? It sounded like you were referring to standardization first. It all depends, I, I think, and I think it's different in each situation, but I believe Great process sets you free. Standardized, a standardized methodology sets the creativity free. And so, so, and, and it allows time to focus on the right things. It does, you know, it has a million different benefits. And it can't be, you know, can't rigid standardization is on the other side of that spectrum. You can't standardization can beat the heck out of personalization if it's taken to an extreme. Um, but I do think culturally. And the mindset of executives and leader, leaders of the future have to be the eye on the prize is personalization. The methodology to that personalization can, in fact, um, have some standardization to it. Absolutely. And, and, and that's uh, you did a better job of explaining <laughs> how to how these two forces coexist, because you're right, Kathy. It's not that they should be competing against each other. They should be finding the best of one another. So why, at least from my perspective, I'd love to hear yours. I'm, I feel as if both of these forces are operating at the extremes. I feel like there's this resistance that standardization isn't ready for uh, the personalization that's coming their way. I think it's all in how it's used. I've seen brilliant examples of standardization delivering personalization. And, and I think that um, the designers of that which is standardized have to not love the beauty of the standardization, but what it can give us in terms of the beauty of the ability to customize. For us, you know, we have a goofy term for it, but it's what we use, uh, which is high tech, high touch. And we use technology we and we believe very strongly that technology can be used to drive more focus, emphasis and time for the personalized approach and personalized solutions. If you'll if you'll allow the word that our clients are, and customers are looking for and, and really now just aren't looking for, but demand. If it feels like it's someone else's solution, it isn't just that a customer's reaction isn't just benign. It is a rejection. So exactly. the stakes are very high. Yes. Yeah. So so how can organizations ensure that technology respects the need for human connection? I think a lot of it has to do with the people that run the technology. Right. The, the, the focus isn't on the beauty of the technology. It's what the technology can give us as a path, as a journey to the client or the customer and the mindset of customer and client backwards into the technology, I think, is what is essential in getting that balance of personalization and standardization right. So who should own the process, the one who owns the technology or the one that owns the customer? Well, I think we all own both. The best companies believe we own that we that we own both. I have to know as much about the business as the people running the businesses do. And the businesses have to know um, enough about technology to understand the art of what's possible or to understand what kinds of solutions they're, they're looking for and to be able to listen really to what the marketplace and what clients are, are telling them. So, so on that note, do you think that um, 
as organizations search for their for the right digital transformation strategy, is there a tendency maybe to over index on technology uh, while the people side of its contribution is under indexing? I think that risk exists. How do um, we? I'm sorry. How do we mitigate that risk? Well, because again, because I, I, I think people get really excited about all the shiny bells and whistles that technology brings. Well, if you were going to ask me um, what one, you know, one of the most important things to hold focus to, it is to hold focus not to be attracted by the shiny objects. Yeah, there's only one shiny object that matters, and that is the customer um, or the the client whose lives we are changing by the very nature of what we have the capabilities to do. You know, the standardized approach would say, I'm making a mortgage loan. The personalized approach says, I'm helping a family buy a house. Mm -hmm. It's the same process. It's just two different perspectives. And I think, um, you know, nobody like nobody buys a shiny app. They want to have the shiny app help them buy the buy the home. Um, and so why, you know me, it's why I go crazy with with terms like big data or AI or got you know, goodness, blockchain. These these things are shiny, but they're not destinations. Mm. They are tools. And we can standardize the use of the tools or deploy the tools aggressively, but they have to deliver um, for the customer and the client. So how is Bank of America's digital transformation efforts creating uh, jobs for the future, Kathy? Well, it has to, by definition, right? Um, anyone, anytime someone says to me, do I think digitization decimates a workforce? I say, no, it changes the skills our workforce needs. It doesn't, if it decimates the workforce, shame on us for irresponsible, irresponsible use or de deployment. And that's certainly not the standard we hold ourselves to. The other thing I've really framed up my thinking about in a different way is this concept of what we talked about 20 years ago as the war for talent. Yeah. It's not a war for talent. It's a war for skills. Hmm. And so the whole the question that you're raising is how to have the skills that are resident in our people uh, be contemporary and continuous, continuously moving, moving forward. We're not going to be processing paper checks the way we used to. We already process billions less than we used to as an industry. That doesn't mean there aren't 10 other tasks that need to be done in order for money to move. It's a different set of skills. Um, and it's important that, we're, that we aggressively pursue that skill transformation. So you know where I'm going now is, what are the skills that we need in banking? What are they? Well, we need to be great at using data. So data science skills, to put the geeky, nerdy term on it, data science skills, modeling and analytics skills, statistical skills and statistical interpretation, two different things, mm -hmm. right? Um, we have to fundamentally be problem solvers or opportunity um, uh, achievers. And so really that critical thinking and the ability to take the output of the technology and use it to make decisions and use it to um, provide insights and use it to, to literally make the world a better place, make the client experience better. Those are the kinds of, of skills that we need. I can code. I can code in COBOL. Yeah. Okay. Not a lot of demand for coding in COBOL. So that individual technical skill 
that I may have had at one time lugging computer cards around in my backpack. That individual technical skill has to transcend to the use of what the technology produces and the problem solving and opportunity uh, garnering uh, things that 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 come with that. So maybe a little off topic here or maybe not, Kathy, but is, is there's going to probably be a lot of emerging leaders that are going to be inspired by what they're hearing from you right now. What do you what's your message to an emerging leader or even early in career individual that's trying to find their place in the world right now? Most importantly, be a continuous learner. Learning doesn't stop when you enter the workforce with whatever bag of skills you come in with. That's when learning starts. And the person who seeks out learning opportunities has a sort of zigzaggy career path hmm. versus one function straight up up the ladder. That that continuous learning and the confidence that no matter where you are in your career, you can continue to learn. That that's that is this that is the the call it the currency of the great leader of the future. I believe. Well, I, I think part of what we're all trying to understand is how do we remain relevant not just as leaders, but as institutions. And again, uh, in being prepared, uh, in, in upskilling and just being aware of what's happening all around us right now, I think is at a premium. And I continue to see that leaders just don't seem to be as in touch with the changing world around us. What should leaders, especially at your level, Kathy, what, they, what should they be in touch with in this changing world around us? It's interesting, Glenn, because when you get to, to uh, a, a role like mine in a company, there are a lot of things that work against staying in touch, hmm. right? I take an elevator that's an express elevator. I might not stop on any floors as I go up to my office. Hmm. And if I don't run into someone when I'm walking to my office, I could actually spend an entire day not running into another human being, you know, it's, it's more like um, work from home only in the office. Right. So, so I think, I think staying in touch is a deliberate set of actions. I work very hard to make sure that I get feedback from deep in the organization that I create a culture where things get escalated both inside the company and outside the company so that, um, so that I can, I get a sense of what's really going on, not what people want to tell me is is going on satya nadella said something he borrowed a phrase one time that i thought was fantastic which is the ultimate irony is the more you move up in a corporation um the more you need to know and the less people want to tell it to you <laughs> it's so true and and so it's almost it's almost an approach of needing to be an invasive learner hmm. to to do things that may cause hierarchical disruption but ensure that I can that I can you know, have eyes in the back of my head or have um, more than what people want to tell me. I know what's really happening. Um, I think being able to synthesize, you know, to take 10 dots from 10 different sources and put together the common theme or what's really being said is important. And uh, and so really working to be a conscious uh, dot connector, mm -hmm. I think. It's a learned skill. You can train yourself to do it, but no fact exists in isolation. 
and great leaders put them together in ways that that create incredible insight and set them apart. Well, what you just described was, and by the way, here's a little surprise for you. I came up with a little brand for you based upon uh, your need to to want to deal with the tough things. And I said that Kathy's a complexity solver. And the way you just describe what it means to stay in touch, I believe that that's an accumulation of wisdom that has that you've picked up through the years of how to create your own systems for staying in touch by recognizing that nothing's easy. And the more you challenge, the more difficult things, I think it's, it becomes easier to understand the things that really matter. Is there some truth to that? Well, I, w- I would say that even, my husband even said it to me today. He said, you know what? Cause every once in a while he gets to listen to what I do now, which he never got to do before. He's actually stunned. I'm decent at my job, I think. <laughs> but, um, but uh, he said, you know, it, it amazes me that you can get right to the heart of what's going on. Now, I don't know that I allow myself, you know, I'm just insecure enough not to allow myself to actually believe that. But I do think I, what I see in other people when they have that ability, their ability to move things forward is very different than a person for whom the who gets lost in the complexity. The right. key in the complexity is to sort out its essential elements and attack or direct or or cause change there. It's very interesting because when we have a te- an, a technology instance, something doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. People will often want to blame the technology. Right. And when you really parse through it, we had a little tiny incident yesterday. When you really parse through it, it wasn't the defect in the code that was the problem. The problem was that someone chose to make a change to the system Mm. at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. You know, that's a very bad time to try to make a change when people Mm. are trying to wrap up for the day. The Federal Reserve even closes its window for us at 445. So, you know, and that is that is a far more complicated problem to solve. If the code didn't doesn't work, you back it out, you rewrite it, whatever. When the judgment is the issue. Mm. And, but yep. there are a lot of people that would look at that and leave it at the code broke. Well, I think that takes us to one of our final questions here, Kathy. I, first of all, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, just listening to you. You you're inspiring and you're you bring a lot of hope um, with. Um, by getting right to the point and to get at the heart of the matters that I think a lot of people are losing sleep over. No, but I actually believe that, and again, I think this is validated from what I've heard from you in our time is that, um, that we're moving, we're moving from a knowledge-based to wisdom-based economy, that it's no longer just about what you know, but what you do with what you know. What are your thoughts on that? I think that is brilliantly said, and that is a word I would use sparingly. So, but that is brilliantly said. It is, it is not about the time early in my career where I was a fact machine. <laughs> and, and our CEO would tell you, I've, known, I've worked for him for a long, long time. I think he would tell you that my standard of accountability for myself was on how much I knew. The, the time I came, began, to, began to come into my own as an executive and as a leader, and I see this in other people, is when you figure out exactly what you said. It isn't all the facts you can cram into your brain. It's what you do with them. 
It's not, it's not the 10 things someone tells you. It's the figuring out which two are important or maybe sometimes which two are the least important, but maybe the shiniest or the most inflammatory or the kinds of, you know, the, the flame that every moth wants to run to. Finding those distraction points is just as important as capitalizing on the really relevant points. So I think you are spot on with um, that articulation. Well, thank you, Kathy. And look, we got to do a shout out to the to the uh, Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Tell us tell us what's happening at your alma mater that you'd like to close the show with. Well, we are about to embark on a transition that I will make sure is exciting and favorable. We are in a search for a new dean. Our dean, my my beloved Scott Drew, who climbed uh, who got me to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> With him, uh, uh, we'll be we'll be moving uh, into the private sector. So we've got a leadership change at a very tumultuous time in, in education, yeah. in secondary education. Um, and in the meantime, we've got to get a winning football team. I mean, let's really, Glenn, cut to what's important. Hey, look, it looks great. I got a surprise for you. So this was back. This is back in my college days. I had some have some friends in Michigan, and they're police officers. So. We got into the Michigan campus, went on the football field, and I got on, and I sat on top of the goalpost. So all I'm about all the maize and blue, and I'm rooting for them every year, even though I'm a UCLA Bruin. Um, I love the tradition of the university, so uh, I could see why they've turned helped turn out such a good product like you, Kathy. Well, thanks, Glenn. You know, going back to what we were saying, the really important part of that story is that you could make it up the goalpost. <laughs> <laughs> I need to hear more about that sometime. That's that's adventure. Oh no! And by the way, I had a pretty good arm. I could I could throw the the sixty yard bomb. So I'll, well, that's it. but I can't do that anymore. But I, I I love I love the state of Michigan. I really do. I've got great friends out there. But Kathy, look, thank you so much for your time. As always, I just love talking to you and I and in just listening to the things that you can articulate the way that you do. And I'm serious about this, Kathy. Not every executive can to a point where it's believable. Like you're not selling anything. You're just sharing what you know to be true about your own experiences, the trust that you have in yourself and the hope that you have for the future. So uh, thank you so much for, for sharing these stories with us today. Well, Glenn, thanks for all that you put into this to make it a discussion and not an not a fakey interview and to make it authentic and smart. It makes a real difference. And, and your leadership in this, in these sectors and, and the whole podcast series and the issues you discuss very, very important and you make it um, human and relatable too. So thank you. Thank you, Kathy. As we leave every show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.